0: Welcome to the podcast of Midtown Church OKC, A Church of the Nazarene. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus. We want to develop real relationships and have real conversations, so we would love to hear from you. Find information about our worship services, email a pastor, follow our blog, sign up for our newsletter, and find out how to be a part of our community by visiting our website MidtownChurchOKC.org. Let me pray for us. And as I do, um, I want to let you know that these words are not my own. The pastor, Paul, um, who wrote much of the New Testament, filled his letters with beautiful words and prayers. And so tonight I pray with Pastor Paul and I invite you to pray with us as well. This is from Ephesians chapter two, three, excuse me. So God, we bow in prayer to you because of this work that you've called us to. And from you, Father, this whole family in heaven and on earth gets its name. And so I pray that you, O oh God, will use your glorious riches to make these my brothers and sisters strong. May your, may your spirit, Lord, give us power that goes deep down inside each person here so that Christ may live in our hearts. And I pray that our love will have deep roots. I pray that it will have a strong foundation. May these people, may Midtown Church of the Nazarene have power with all God's people to understand Christ's love and may my brothers and sisters in this place know to the very core of their being how wide and how long and how high and how deep Christ's love is and may we know his love even though it can't be known completely that we may be filled with everything that you have for us God. And you, you are the God who is able to do far more than we could ever ask for or imagine. And we have big asks and we have big imaginations, but you can surpass them. And you, God, you are working your power in us. And so we give you glory. And we ask that you would be glorified in this place, in the church, and in Jesus Christ. Through all time and forever and ever and ever. Amen.
1: I'm going to invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy, and on this fourth Sunday of every month, we have friends who uh, lead our children's sermon, and so if you are first through fifth grade, you can just head on this way and follow these great people. You can go now if you'd like. And the rest of you, uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles to um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I've got some friends who have Bibles. I'd encourage you to take a Bible tonight if you do not have a Bible. So raise your hand and one of these will bring you a Bible. You can put your your finger uh, in the table of contents, but you can also put your other finger here in this second letter to Timothy, Timothy chap- 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 15, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word, we have one over here, so hear the word of the Lord for us this evening, I'm going to be reading, I'm going to add verse 14 as well. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last week, we introduced our new series, Asking Questions About the Bible, and I told you that I had received an email from a 15-year-old girl asking me some questions about the Bible and how to go about understanding it. She's bright, she's super smart, she didn't just uh, embrace faith because people told her that she should, she really thought through some things. And and essentially, she asked five different questions in this email, and I'll show it to you here. She asked this first question, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is true? We talked about this last week, and uh, if you have any questions about that or if you missed it, uh, we're going to be putting the manuscript of last week's sermon on our blog on the website and you can check that out tomorrow. Tonight we're talking about the second one. What is the Bible and where does it come from? This is what she she asked us. What is she asked me? Th- she asked me this third question, what is the function of the Bible? And the fourth one, how do we even go about reading and interpreting it? And then the last one, you know, it's the home run hitter. It's the one she asks that that we all need to be asking. And that is why does reading and interpreting the Bible even matter? Last week we asked the first question. We asked the question, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is true? And we asked this question within a series of rules that we called orthodoxy. And orthodoxy simply means right belief. And right belief is rooted in a history. Now What Christians believe is that the Bible, this whole thing, from beginning to end, tells a certain kind of story. From Genesis to Revelation, it tells a a story about salvation. We could say it this way that salvation, that the Bible is a story of a salvation amongst a, a vast history. It's a story of a vast salvation history. Now, the scripture tells us And this is what we talked about last week, that it tells us the story of a particular God who did the work of revealing God's self to the world, first in the chosen people of Abraham, who heard God's word, and, and they heard it in call, and they heard it in promise, and they heard it in liberation, and they heard it in guidance, they heard it in judgment and forgiveness and further judgment, and then they heard it in renewed liberation, and renewed promise. This is what the Old Testament tells us. This is the story of the Old Testament. And then the church believed and confessed that the renewed promise that they read about in the Old Testament came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the earliest Christians believed that he was the living embodiment of Israel's God in the world. They believed that that he was the same God whose spirit had inspired the scriptures in the first place. This is what we said last week when we said that we believe that the Bible is true. God reveals God's self to the world, and Christians have confessed that the embodiment of God is seen in the person of Jesus. But Sarah is asking the second question. That is, how did this whole thing even come together? How did these ancient texts come together? And, and so I want to look at that with us tonight. Now, you may want to write some things down. Uh, there might be some things that you don't know, some interesting pieces. I'll be confessional. There might even be some boring pieces for you. But even in the boring, we need to be listening the activity of God as, as we watch how God is a participant in putting these things together. So the Old Testament Bible is the Bible of Judaism, and it is the part of the Bible of Christianity. Now, Jewish tradition divides the, the Hebrew scriptures of the Jewish Bible into, the, into three sections. You can see them on the screen. First, you have the law, and then you have the prophets, and then you have the writings. The law would be like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You would have the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then the minor prophets like Daniel and Amos and Malachi. And then you would have the writings like Psalms and Proverbs, Ezra, Nehemiah. Now, the Protestant version of the Bible, and we're Protestant, the Church of the Nazarene is Protestant, so the Protestant version of the Bible, along with the Jewish Bible and the Roman Catholic edition of the Bible, contain all the 39 books that you have there in your table of contents. Every single one contain the 39 books, but, not, but these are not all in the exact same order. Protestants arrange them in a different order than Jewish people do the Jewish Bible or the Catholic Bible and if you're interested in all of that I invite you to a source called Wikipedia You can read all about it if you'd like Now it's difficult To determine the exact day when the Old Testament was put together in the present form that we have today it was a long and it was a complex process that included storytelling and writing and developing manuscripts. Most experts believe that the oldest stories in the book of Genesis come from Israel's faith traditions during the, the, the days of Moses around, uh, in around the, 13th, uh, the 13th century B.C. And then the substantial part of like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy they were a part of Israel's oral tradition for three at least three or more generations before they were fixed in written form. And now you can see here back by popular demand not to scale Chris's brilliant timeline. I put this together myself on this little program that I learned about called PowerPoint. It's an amazing invention. Now, a typical biblical scholar, Christian biblical scholar, believes that most of the Old Testament books received their final form between 800 and 400 B.C. Nobody is exact on this, but they've estimated this, okay? But around 100 B.C., Jewish authorities in Palestine began the process of examining the various manuscript traditions in order to... To set the standard and make the official scriptures of Judaism. Now this process, the whole thing, even though it started in 100 BC, wasn't finalized until AD 100, and, but once this was done, I, I want you to understand that Judaism took very special care in preserving these ancient texts. They took They went to extreme lengths in order to protect these documents. There was a careful and extensive process whenever the documents started to wear away that they would copy them in the right kind of of way. They had scribes, these ancient experts, that followed very, very specific rules when they would copy these manuscripts. And all through the process, the Jewish community of faith took took diligent steps to recognize these books as authoritative for faith and practice. Now, this whole thing, this whole process, and Chris's brilliant timeline of putting these books together, then recognizing that they were, they were uh, legitimate for faith and practice is a process called canonization. Canonization. Sarah, you can go to the next slide if you want. Now, canonization simply means this. It's a a read or a stock, but it's a way of measuring something. It's a rule or it's a standard. And the people who protected these books, these ancient documents, they saw that they had a certain standard. Now, these sacred collections of books were seen by the people as an amazing gift. They were everyone, everyone was used in worship, but it also set a standard for faith and life. And when the scriptures were read, people would dance and they would cheer and they would, they would respond. They would hold these huge festivals where these words were, writ, were read aloud and they celebrated together the sacredness of these texts. And they celebrated the sacredness not just of the texts themselves but of the story that was revealed in these texts. Now, scholars believe that the books of the law were authoritative, uh, or authoritative scriptures of Judaism by 400 B.C., and it could have been because of Ezra, who we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah after he read and established the law after the Jewish exiles were able to come home in the 5th in the century. You can, you can read about Ezra in those texts. This is when they think that, that this 400 B.C. is when they think that the Torah was accepted as authoritative. And then later they accepted the former and later prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Malachi and the others, perhaps around 200 B.C., And some of the writings then, like the Psalms or Proverbs or Esther or Job, were considered sacred scripture as early as the first century AD. But official endorsement was given to all 39 books by the rabbis at the Council of Jamnia in AD 95, meaning there was an official statement. Yes, we hold to these books that they are true about the revelation of God. Now, these are the texts that Jesus of Nazareth read, these 39 books. But not only that, Jesus of Nazareth believed that he understood his own identity and his own vocational calling in terms of the Hebrew scriptures. In other words, he felt like he was receiving his call, and his identity from what he read in these books. He believed, he was formed by these books, and he believed in God's long-range purposes and that they would be at last brought to fruition in him. In other words, you need to know that Jesus read these books and he was shaped by the Hebrew scriptures and he understood his own role within salvation history by reading these texts. But it wasn't just Jesus who read these. These were also the books that were used in worship by the early church. These 39, to Jesus and to Paul and to John Mark and to Peter, and the rest, the rest of the apostles. These 39 books were Holy Scripture. They believed that these 39 books were Holy Scripture. They thought that these 39 books were the authoritative and inspired written Word of God that told, uh, uh, that told the story about how God was working in this vast salvation history. So when Paul says to Timothy the Scriptures are God-breathed, and they're useful for teaching and training and rebuking and correcting. He's talking about these 39 books. None of the New Testament writers believed that they were writing Holy Scripture when they were writing them. None of them believed that they were writing the Bible. And this is, like, an elementary way to talk about canonization of the Old Testament. But you know, because we said it last week, that there is an order to way in which this whole thing goes. First, there is God, who reveals God's self to the world, and a people observe this, bear witness to it, and they respond to this activity of God, and they do so by telling stories. God reveals God's self to the world not just in written word, but the Christian the early church believed that God revealed God's self to the world in a person. God showed up in person. And a group of people bear witness to this and interpreted this activity within their own history and their own language and their own political climate and their own socio-economic standing and even in their own health care needs. And they began to to tell the story of this divine and personal encounter with this personal God. And here is what they called it, good news. Now, most of what we have in the New Testament scriptures, and specifically in the Gospels, began as storytelling. And we call this oral tradition tradition. Now, it's difficult for us to imagine what it feels like to be in an oral culture because we read stuff constantly. Things are being bombarded at us. We're bombarded with, uh, with words in written form constantly. We can communicate with one another without even talking. We can be completely isolated with one another and still communicate. The way in which we communicate, we have a variety of different ways to do so. So we imagine oral tradition like the telephone game that we used to play in in the second grade. Do you remember that game? you know, where you would tell the first person in your classroom a secret, then they had to tell the next person the same secret without letting anybody know, and then they would tell the next person, and it would go all the way around the room, and when you got to the end, and the last person told what told what they had heard, it was a completely different result. It would be something like, I would tell Pastor McHale, I went snowmobiling when I was nine. She would secretly tell it, and it would go all the way around. Come back to Brian where he would say something like, I don't know, Grandma got kicked in the face by a horse this is how we see the telephone game being played and this is how we imagine oral tradition but that's not how an oral culture worked an oral culture was a storytelling culture and everyone was involved in the story in the storytelling we as human beings are liturgical beings that's why we are committed to telling good news. That's why we have a liturgy in our worship, because liturgy simply means a good story told. We are beings that are shaped by stories. Movies, books, events, songs all contribute to our storytelling. And while we are not entirely in oral culture, I, I can prove that you're shaped by storytelling. Storytelling. Some of you will know immediately what I'm referring to when I say, shut up, Beavis. Do you know what that is? Some of you do, I've got a picture of it. Who knows what that is? Maybe I got a picture of it, maybe I don't. Who knows what this is? Welcome to the 90s, everybody. Or, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say this. I'm not really superstitious, but I am a little stitious. Who is that? Yeah, you know these things. You know what I'm talking about when I shout, Norm, that's from Cheers, or yada, 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 Seinfeld, or you know what I'd say when I, you know what I'm talking about, and now multiple generations know what I'm talking about when I say, how rude. Stephanie Tanner, Fuller House, come on, everybody. (laughs) Harper loves Fuller House. Awesome, I love that. We are also a storytelling culture and i would argue that though we are not uh, uh, though we are not exactly a storytelling or an oral culture we are a storytelling culture and even with us we are shaped by storytelling that we know how stories are told even to the very last word you can sing the whole song when i say in west philadelphia <laughs> you know how it works on the playground is where I spent most of my days. <laughs> Look at that. Gina's got it. <laughs> I love that. This is how this works. We're a storytelling people, and we can tell stories down to the very detail. And Gina and I, and I know the exact words to the same story. To be told. All the time, we have never, I don't know about you, I've never seen the words, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air written down. They've been told to me. You can tell the story of the Kennedy assassination. You know the details. You can talk about, perhaps you've read about it, or you've heard about it, or you remember. You remember the British invasion. You know parts of the I have a dream speech, and the assumption is that others experienced the same things that you experienced, and they told the same stories that you told down to the very detail of the exact same thing. And they tell these, and, and the gospel writers, before they were written down, they told the stories, and these stories were told over and over and over and over and over. So not to make it too elementary, This is the nature of oral tradition in a culture that only communicated through words. And so it's easy to see that as they claimed God's salvation and God's revelation to them in their times of joy and their times of trial and their rebellion and their exile, they would tell stories and they would sing songs about it. But generations started to go by, right? Decades started to go by. So eventually, people began to write down some of these stories in order to keep a proper and accurate account of these events. This is what the gospel writer Luke says. You can see it on the screen. Many have undertaken to draw upon an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. This is oral tradition. So with this in mind, I have carefully myself investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He heard them. And then Luke wrote a report about it. Now when Luke says many when there are a lot of people who are writing a lot of things down, what Luke means by that is many. He means a lot. A whole lot. Lots and lots and lots of people attempted to write down and did write down the events as they saw him, as they saw them. And here are just some that we know about. I took a screenshot of it. I don't know if you can see it very well. The black text are the dates. The red text are the number of writings, records that we have. If you're looking for a place to go to check it out, you can go to earlychristianwritings.com. This is the website. There were a lot of people who wrote a lot of things, some very accurate to what the apostles taught, some sort of accurate, some not accurate at all. So the apostles, after some of these things were written down, began to choose which ones they felt like they needed to write down, and this was not done willy-nilly. That's a theological word. It was not done willy-nilly. In fact, like the Old Testament, there was a process that took place over time, and as the early church gathered for worship in homes, they would sing like we do. And then they would read the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures of Jesus. And then they would tell stories of the saving nature of God as they had seen it, who revealed God's self to them in the resurrected Jesus, the one who had resurrected Jesus from the dead. And then they would eat together. This is what worship looked like in the early church. And as the church began to grow and as these saw and testified to God's continuing saving work, they were forced to think about what this means for them and their daily living. The same thing that we are forced to do after we've been baptized. We must think about how we live after what we have heard. So, the beginning of New Testament canonization probably came with some exchanges of Paul's letters around the 80s or the 90s. And the early church probably could have gone on for some time just like that, worshiping together, reading the Hebrew scriptures, and having the Lord's Supper there together, having the Lord's Supper there at the center of their worship. But as the church was pushed into a position of persecution, they began to hold on to and read the text that they had in worship the texts that were being passed around with their Hebrew scriptures but not only that not only were they being persecuted there were also other significant theological pressures that they were facing they wanted to make sure to get it right so the earliest form of a New Testament canon that we have an order of the New Testament was Uh, put together by a guy whose name was Marcion around, I don't know, the turn of the first century, just a little after that. Now Marcion liked Paul, but he hated Jewish people. And so he didn't include the Gospel of Matthew in his list or Mark or John because they were Jewish. He liked Luke because it had a Gentile tone. And then, he included, and then he included some of Paul's writings and he dumped the Old Testament entirely. Marcion, what he did was he just like did this ancient cut and paste. And he took the letters of, parts of the letters that he liked and he put them together and he took, just like, just like people can take a sound bite out of context, and he ended up creating a whole new theology of Jesus Christ. He ended up telling an entirely different story. So the church, in response to Marcion, because they were committed to keeping the story right, and because of the dangers of poor theology, the church responded, wanting to get it right and understanding that bad theology is very, very, very dangerous. They were forced to begin to think about their own list. And so, they... They went about the process of getting it right. A couple of highlighting points for you. Uh, in 180, 8180, Irenaeus, who was an early church father, took books and he narrowed the collection down to four, the four Gospels. So for Irenaeus, it was the Hebrew Bible and the four Gospels. Then in AD 180 to 200, there was the Muratorian Fragment, which is perhaps the oldest, a copy of the oldest list of books in our New Testament. Years and years ago, around 180 to 200, this fragment put together this list of the books of the New Testament, and it lists most of the books that we have now in our New Testament, but it also included a couple other ones that were on that list that you saw. The wisdom of Solomon was included, and the revelation of Peter. Then later, Origen, another church father, came along, and he made a list with the general makeup being the majority of what we have in our New Testament today, and he also listed some books that, that should be left out, that he said, these are, these are books that are not orthodox or heretical He had a list of books that he showed would be accepted, those that should be disputed, and then those that should be rejected entirely. And you need to know that as this is happening, these are still the same books that are being used, the same letters that are being circulated and used in worship. And by AD 200, 21 of the 27 books were clearly recognized as being Holy Scripture. Now, this is an amazing thing. I can't even get along and agree with everything that my family members are trying to make a decision on. And the church, 200 years later, is agreeing upon and affirming these 21 books of the 27. This is is an incredible deal. The church in its first 200 years had expanded greatly throughout the empire and the people were under severe persecution. And these texts were the texts that were collectively agreed upon and they were preserved with diligence and with care. Some people even gave their lives in order to protect these books, not because the book was so special and they worshiped the book, but because they did not want the story to die it was essential for them and it needed to be preserved and then when cultural and theological issues would arise the church did not make quick statements they did not make quick decisions they would go back to one of the three cate- they would go back to the three categories of origin and they would ask questions should this be accepted or is it disputed or is it entirely rejected And they would consider when a book was to be included into the canon by going with the rule, they would first wait and pray and think, and then they would ask themselves, is this a book that was written by an eyewitness? Or was it consulted? Was an eyewitness consulted? That was the first thing that they would ask. Then the second thing they would ask is this, does the message of this text Line up with the apostolic truth that we have heard before? In other words, is the message consistent with what we know about how God has revealed God's self to the world through the resurrected Christ? And then they would ask this third question Is this a book that we collectively agree upon? Meaning that it is being used on top of the Hebrew scriptures in worship. And by the fourth century, all the churches began to recognize these 27 books that we have. They included them into the canon. And by the close of the fourth century, the church made an official statement declaring that these are the affirmed 66 books and they were canonized. They were canonized texts and considered holy scripture. This is what we have today. This is the same thing that the Church of the Nazarene affirms in 2017. We believe in these 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, which have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, and without error, tell us the good story of how God has decided to save the world through Jesus Christ. This is how we got here. Now, I want to just say one pastoral word, if I could. Thank you for listening to the history lesson. There is a whole lot more that you could do research on. And there are uh, gigantic fields of study that work through uh, how how the process of canonization went. And eggheads like me really like the history of this. It's really interesting to me. But as I told you in the call to worship, in a world that is chopped up by sound bits, and talking heads and 140 character statements. I, I'd like to argue, I, I believe that it is necessary for our survival to understand and to pour over how we got here. This is a vast story. And without knowing our history or how these stories begin to shape who we are, we cannot live into the world that we are called to live in. And we cannot know our own identity or our own vocation. And if Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, understood his own identity and his own vocation within these sacred pages, how dare we think that we can know our identity or our vocation if we avoid them? This is our story. This is is what makes it true that God has decided to save the world through the resurrected Christ. And people have, people have been bearing witness to this, and they continue to bear witness to this today. We could say it this way, that the scriptures speak of our past so that it can help us identify God's activity in the present, and we might be able to move into God's future. The church believed that this was the way in which, this was the story about how God intends to save the world, all of it, 66 books, the stuff that's easy to understand and the stuff that is difficult to understand. And, if, and I don't know if you have realized this, but the world needs saving, This was not put together flippantly. The salvation story is rooted in this people. It was rooted in a people where the rich got richer and the poor got poorer. It was rooted in a story where there was a sociological and religious and political and and economic mess. People then, as they are now, as they have been now, people then were drafted into military conflicts or they were overtaxed or they had no voice of freedom or expression. These are the people, people who were put in jail, put these texts together and protected them. And while these are the issues that are the same for us today, I am concerned that we are being shaped by the voices not of the people of God who bear witness to and tell these stories of mercy and compassion and hospitality and generosity and freedom, but the moral compass for us has become wealthy world leaders, big business CEOs, NFL owners and millionaire players and political talking heads. But ours Is a story of right belief. Ours is a commentary of right belief. And these commentaries out here do not fall in the line of orthodoxy. Because orthodoxy is this grand story that we are being invited into that has shaped the people of God for generations and could shape us right now. So, where do we start? Oh, we, I think we start with reading. That is why the scriptures are central in our worship service every week. One of the things that Sarah asks is, are the scriptures up for interpretation? And I'm gonna be talking about that a little bit next week, but my, my answer is yes. And it is all interpreted through the lens the person of Jesus. And do you wanna know what Jesus is like? you come to this table. What happens at this table is our interpretive lens. This is mercy on display. This is sacrifice on display. This is love on display. This is hospitality on display. This is acceptance on display. This is death on display.